Lord God, we, uh, as we go through our weeks and our days, we have many uh, stresses, many disappointments, many failures, many difficulties that we uh, face. And uh, how often, Lord, we uh, think that we need something, uh, something of this earth, uh, some circumstantial change to, to make it all right. Uh, but Lord, your word tells us that what we need is you. Uh, what we need is a sight of you. And so we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. You've revealed yourself to us. And so as we, we look to your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see you, behold your glory, and be comforted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. God wants you to be comforted by Isaiah 40. Why? Well, Isaiah 40 tells us because he's coming. He's coming. But notice how God is presented in his coming. How is he coming? What's he coming like? Well, verse 5 says... The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. This is a view of, of splendor, of majesty. Verse 6 and verse 7. All flesh is as grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because why? Why? The breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. All flesh is as grass. The breath of the Lord blows on it and it falls over. Like a tower made of cards, such is the strength of men, such is your strength. Such is my strength. The gentlest wind from God's mouth comes and we topple. We fade and we disappear. Just a word from God. And the flower fades away and comes to nothing. This should remind us of the picture of Christ in the boat. The great storms and tempests of this world raging around the disciples, waves and wind and clouds and rain, tossing them on the surface of the water like they were nothing. Such strength in nature. And yet Jesus stands and speaks a word, just a breath from his mouth. Peace, be still. And the frothing waters were calm. This is the power of God. And Isaiah doesn't stop there as he displays God in his coming and his majesty and his power and his strength. He wants you to see just how almighty God is. Verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, lift up your voice and shout, here is your God. Look at him. And what will you see? 
See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. In verse 10. And his arm shall rule for him. This language is war language. A God who comes to rule and has strength to enforce his rule. His hand is strong, his arm is powerful, he is the King Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah goes on in verse 12 to expand on the greatness of the Lord. Think of the beach. Looking out over those vast expanses of water. How much water is in the ocean? I was at the beach the other day and I was at a, a peninsula. It was just a tiny bit of water and I couldn't see the other side. Imagine trying to measure it. How many times would you have to put your bucket in and draw it out again to empty the ocean? The Lord is so great and so powerful that he measures the oceans by collecting all of the waters together in his hand. And they just, they just sit there in a the little, little bit of his palm. Look up at the stars. Can you get your ruler out and measure how far it is from one side of the heavens to the other? Can you travel out into space and lay out your measuring tape to determine the distance between the stars? Well, Isaiah tells us the Lord measures this distance with the span of his hand. That's the universe. The entire cosmos, there it is. This God is beyond compare. He is strong. He is mighty. But now go out into the desert. Rolling sand dunes, soaring high above those poor souls you usually see in the pictures making a trek along the dunes. How many grains of sand are there in the desert? How would you count them? How long would it take? What about all the dust on the earth? The Lord God takes a basket, it says, in verse 12. And he weighs out the, the dust of this earth. All of the Sahara just fills the little bottom of it and it's all the rest. It's not much for him. He can weigh the mountains and the hills from Everest to Kilimanjaro to Kosciuszko like a merchant weighs out spices on a scale. This is the sheer size and power and strength of God. The God who Isaiah says is coming. And Isaiah just keeps packing on the pictures for us to comprehend the might of God. In verse 13 and 14, we see that the Lord has intellectual power that surpasses any of his creation. Who's understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? No one gives God advice. He never gets to a point where he goes, you know what, I'm going to need some help on this problem. No one gives direction to God. No one is sought by God for counsel. It wouldn't be possible 
for someone to tell God something that he was doing wrong, something that he hadn't thought of. Uh, you know, have, you, have you taken this into account, God? Well, yes. Yes, he has. He has all possibilities in his mind and can make perfectly wise judgments and plans all the time. And then verse 15 to 17, we see God in comparison not to nature, but to the nations. Surely the the nations are like a drop in the bucket. The atomic power of Russia, China and the USA are nothing compared to the Lord. All the global superpowers combined are but a little drop of water. He didn't even notice. He's not concerned at all about the UN, the World Economic Forum, China, the Catholic Church, all these great global powers that move and and sway our politics and our history. They're nothing to God. He looks down at these men united in their causes, seeking to bring about their future, their own version of this world, and he just brushes them off. They're just dust on the scales to him. God is so huge, so glorious, so majestic, so powerful that you could gather all the beasts of Lebanon, slaughter them and lay them on all the forests of Lebanon for the most magnificent burnt offering ever and it would not be sufficient to honour his glory. Now at this point we should be asking ourselves, how is this a comfort? How is it a comfort that the glory of the Lord is coming and will be on display? A glory that can stop the most powerful men in their tracks with just a breath. The glory of a warrior king who treats the greatest superpowers of humanity as nothing. That's not even phased by the majestic wonder of nature. How is this a comfort? Surely it should be a fear. Surely we should be trembling in our boots. Well, it's a comfort because of verse 1 and 2 and because of verse 11. In verse 1 and 2, we see that this is your God. Look with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This glorious, all-powerful, mighty God is your God. He is for you, Christian. If you are in Christ, he is on your side because you are on his. If you are trusting in Jesus, this mighty, glorious, all-powerful warrior king is your powerful, mighty, glorious warrior king. 
And he hasn't come to subject you to a ruthless, domineering rule. No, he's come to deliver you, to save you, to fight for you, to build a kingdom for you, to bring peace in your life where there once was warfare, to take all of those enemies, human, circumstantial, the inner enemies of your heart, and to lay them low, to destroy them. To bring you to safety. But I love verse 11. Here we see what this mighty omnipotent king is like toward his people. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The picture before us is a shepherd king. Picture that the shepherd wandering through the wilderness to find those patches of sweet grass for his flock. He guides his flock with care. But during the hot afternoon, after a long day's walk, several of the little lambs start lagging behind. They are weak and weary. But our shepherd doesn't despise them. He doesn't scorn them. He turns back and he scoops up those little lambs in his arms. A pregnant sheep struggles to keep up as well and so the shepherd carrying lambs in his arms slows down to walk alongside that pregnant mother. He reaches down with one hand and rests it on one of the sheep's heads to give them encouragement, I'm here. And slowly, gently, patiently, he leads them to green pastures and still waters. Is this shepherd weak? No, not at all. This shepherd is of necessity strong. He must be strong to to fight off the bears and the lions and the wolves. He must be strong to carry the tired lambs. Here is the, the point that I'm making. When God is described in verse 11 as gently leading those who have young, it shows us something about Gentleness. It shows us that gentleness is not a lack of strength. It shows us that gentleness is not a lack of fight. It's not a weakness. It's not softness. It's not apathy. Gentleness is directional strength. It's strength used in the service of a particular people. And our God is a gentle God. A gentle shepherd is tender to his lambs, but will tear a lion limb from limb. The shepherd's strength is directed towards nurturing his sheep, and the shepherd's violent activity towards a predator is not impulsive, out of control, or self-willed. It is exercised for the protection of his flock. That is what it means to be gentle. 
And the Lord is gentle because he uses his great and awesome strength to nurture his people, to protect his people. He gives them all that they need through his powerful provision. He forgives their sins. He leads them to food. He carries them to food when they can't walk. He doesn't grow frustrated when they grow slow and weary. Instead, he gently leads them. The Lord is still gentle when he uses his great and awesome strength to decimate the enemies of his people. The picture I held up for the children is a, a painting of, of David. And it's, it, it's such a beautiful display of a gentle man. He's kneeling on a slain lion, cradling a lamb in his arms. That's the picture of gentleness. It's not the standard picture of gentleness that you'll get in your mind, but this is true biblical gentleness. Strength designed to protect and to build up God's people in the service of God. And that is what our God is like. He is a gentle God. And the reason that he is like this is because he loves his people. In the end of verse 10, there's an interesting couple of lines. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Or in the New King James, it says, Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. It's a difficult verse to interpret. You might have been wondering as we read through, what does this mean? But it's possible, and I think it's likely, that the reward and the work of God that's being described here is his flock. Is that the very next verse, he tells you what's before him. His flock's before him. God is gentle to you, Christian, because you are his work. You are his reward. You are his delight. And so God directs his strength towards you and your good. He uses his strength to protect you and to build you up. This is why Isaiah 40 is a comfort. This is why the coming of this great and majestic God is a comfort. We, as Christians, we should never feel that God the Father hates us or despises our weakness. Christian, never wonder whether or not God will destroy you or crush you because of your sin, because of your failures. Never wonder what his response will be if you come to him with confusion, with struggles, with pain, with difficulties, with confessions. God is gentle. He will build you up, not tear you down. He will nurture you, not starve you. Even if you are weak and need help getting to the food he provides, he will bear with your weakness, not exploit it. He will carry you in his strong and mighty arms, not crush you with them. God will use all his strength for your good because he is a gentle God. 
Now I want to move a little from Isaiah chapter 40 because I want to show you that the Lord's gentleness, the way in which he comes with strength and, and glory and yet like a tender shepherd caring for his sheep, is on most perfect display in the work of Jesus Christ. A little later in Isaiah, in chapter 42, we read of the servant of the Lord who would come to do God's will. Verse 3 of Isaiah 42 speaks of this servant. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. This is another picture of gentleness, isn't it? The servant of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, doesn't use his power to destroy that which is weak. He won't quench the smoking reed. Or the, the bruised flax, is what other translations say, or a, a bruised reed or a smouldering wick here. Instead, the implication is that if he sees a smouldering wick, he will fan it so that it comes back into flame. If he sees a, a bruised reed, he will pull it up and bind it so that it would grow strong again. This is what Jesus is like. God's people all begin as sinners, broken, weak, needy, and completely unable to even see their own need. And yet the gospel says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was while we were in great need that Christ looked on us and chose not to crush us. He could have destroyed us completely. He had the moral right to do so. We were sinners under judgment. He had the authority to do so. He is the great king and judge of all. And Christ has the strength to do so. He is all-powerful and nothing can stand in his way. And even when we, by the grace of God, turned to Christ, we came as weak and needy people still. And even now we are. We do not have eyes to see the truth of God's word. And instead of despising us as illogical idiots, Christ bends low. He who is logic and truth uses his power not to overcome us, but to build us up, to give us understanding, to provide a foundation of truth on which we can stand, to illuminate our eyes through the work of his spirit. When we feel weighed down by our burdens and our guilt and our shame, Christ doesn't use his moral high ground to land blows on us, no, he calls us to come to him. Come to me, he says, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will not weigh you down more. I will not laugh and mock at your failures. I will not despise you for that repeated sin that you keep falling into. I will relieve you of your burden and give you rest. I will give you peace. Why does Christ say that he will give rest and peace to the weary and burdened in that great passage? Because he's gentle and lowly of heart. And how does he relieve the burden of his people and give them rest? Well, he's gentle by being strong. 
and exercising his strength under the authority of God the Father in the service of God's people. Did it require strength to go to the cross? Yes. The wrath of God on us because of our sin is a heavy burden that Jesus gladly bore. The sorrow and pain associated with bearing God's wrath for our sin pushed Christ, if you could say it this way, to his limits. His heart broke in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the sorrow of the cross. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil in Christ having God the Father bruise him for our sake? And yet, Christ bore this pain for our sakes. Does it require strength to deliver each one of us individually? Yes, even now, Christ is waging war with his mighty right arm to bring his people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He has bound the strong man, the devil, and is now plundering Satan's house, rescuing soul after soul. The sort of power required to do this to bring one soul out of the kingdom of darkness is nothing less than resurrection power. Every time someone comes to saving faith in Christ, Jesus is raising someone from the dead. We have seen that the Lord is gentle in Isaiah 40 and that Christ is gentle as the Lord's servant who delivers, saves and protects his people. And the, the reason I, I wanted to preach this sermon today, we, we did a series in the fruit of the spirit recently and I thought that this is a new year we're coming into and we as Christians, as those who are in Christ, are called to display this sort of virtue in our own lives. In Galatians 5, gentleness is included in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But gentleness, as I say, is this cultivated strength. And so as we go into a new year, it's worth us thinking about. How is it that we are going to build our strength in Christ, that we might serve God and his people. That is what gentleness is. Just as God and Christ are gentle, those who are united to Christ by faith should also be gentle. But if gentleness is strength in the service of God and his people, then in what ways does God give us strength? That's what we need to think about. That's, how we'll, that's our application today. We'll think about different ways that God gives us strength and how we are to use that in the service of God and in the service of his people. I've got five for you. And I've got a little... We'll think of them briefly each. I've got an acronym for you to help you remember. The acronym is PIPES. We have physical strength, intellectual strength, positional strength... Emotional strength and spiritual strength. Physical strength. God gives you physical strength. 
David, as we saw in our picture, as a shepherd, had physical strength. He's tearing up bears and destroying lions. He used that strength at one point to cut off Goliath's head. And I would argue that he was gentle as he did that. How? Because his strength was under the submission of God and was directed towards protecting God's people. In 1 Samuel 17, you you can read about David's act of extreme violence against Goliath. And you can find out what drove him to do that. What was his motivation? Well, it was the honor of God and the protection of God's people. How can this Philistine speak such about God and his people? I will stand. I will protect. I will use my physical strength in the service of God. Jesus turned over tables in the temple and whipped the money changers. Was he not gentle? Was he not displaying one of the fruit of the Spirit at this point? No, he was, because his strength was used not for selfish ambition or for self-assertion, but under God's rule in the service of God's people. He was cleansing the temple for God's honor and so that God's people might once again come and worship him in this place. Our modern concept of gentleness doesn't really allow for this, but perhaps we need to refine our definitions. It may help us to think back a little, several hundred years, to what it meant to be a gentleman. You know those pictures of sort of Victorian-era gentlemen with their top hats and tailcoats? Do those gentlemen fight? Yeah, they do, right? You read your Jane Austen and they fight. He wouldn't be a gentleman if he didn't protect the honour of the women and the children and the aged that God put around him. A gentleman could easily be seen challenging a recalcitrant to a duel, much like David with Goliath. A gentleman would at times bring out the fists and still be a gentleman, but he fought to protect, he fought to defend. He didn't fight for his own sake. Uh, Tolkien captures this concept well with the character Faramir, a strong captain in the army, a man who wielded the sword and bow to great effect. Faramir said this, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I only love that which they defend. This is a gentle view of strength. Men, God has given us a physical strength advantage over women and children. How do you use that strength? Boys, God's given you a physical strength advantage over your sisters. How do you use it? Do you use it to force your sisters or smaller children to do what you want? Do we use our strength to dominate and force people into submission or do we use it to threaten and frighten others for our own benefit? Men, is your wife scared of your physical strength? Or is it a comfort to her? Think of Isaiah 40, the the Lord's strength being a great comfort to his people because we know as God's people that his strength is for our benefit, there to protect us, not crush us. Physical strength, intellectual strength. In our opening, well, in the passage that was read uh, in the New Testament, we read Paul's instructions to Timothy and to all servants of the Lord. Paul said to be gentle to all, not quarrelsome. And the example that Paul gives in 2 Timothy 2.25 is this. In humility, 
correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And he uses that word gentle in that passage to describe how he is to correct people. It's interesting. If, if gentleness is strength under the service of God and in the service of God's people, there's an intellectual strength that comes from being right, from knowing something and from seeing someone in error and seeking to correct them. And yet Paul says, exercise that intellectual capacity gently. Why? Well, he gives you the reason. He says, you don't know who God's people are. You see someone in error, correct them, yes, but correct them with the knowledge that they may be God's people. Seek their good as you correct them. Certainly learn, become knowledgeable, ground yourselves firmly in the truth. But don't use that position of intellectual strength to destroy, destroy the arguments, certainly. But build up those people. Seek their good. Paul said this was his practice in 2 Corinthians 10. He cast down arguments and he did it in gentleness and meekness so that he might save the hearers. Number three, positional strength. This is like authority. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul speaks of, of how he was how he exercised his authority amongst the Thessalonians. And he says this, he says, we did not seek glory from men, even when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, we might have used our position of authority to make demands and to get what we wanted, but we didn't. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul and his fellow uh, ministers had power and authority because of their position. But they didn't use it to dominate. They used it like a mother uses her strength to feed and nurture a child. They used their authority to pour themselves out for the sake of the Thessalonians. They came to Thessalonica to give and to give and to give, asking nothing from the ones they served. Could the same be said of those of us who have positional authority? Are you a teacher in a classroom? Are you a mother, a mother to children? Are you in church leadership? Are you a manager or a business owner? Are you a father or a husband? You have been given authority in all of these positions. How do you use it? God uses his authority to bless his people, to build them up, not to stand on his own rights. So think of Jesus. He didn't stand on his own rights as the Lord of all. He put it aside, emptied himself, took on the nature of man, came and lay himself down, forsaking the rights of his position to serve God and his people. Fourthly, emotional strength. Thought I'd speak to the women for a moment. Men don't have any emotional strength. But this, this is, this is uh, something the scripture points out. Wives and mothers, this, the scripture says, God says that you have emotional power. In a marriage or in a household, you play a big role in setting the emotional tone. The aroma of the house, if you like. Here's a 
a couple of examples, Proverbs 21.9 and Proverbs 25.24 says it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Or Proverbs 21.19, better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. And perhaps this is why Peter picks up on the idea of gentleness in the context of the submissiveness of wives in 1 Peter 3 verse 4. Peter, speaking of how a wife can win her unbelieving husband by her conduct, says that she should have a gentle and quiet spirit. Clearly, Peter thinks that a wife has power in her husband's life. But she should approach her unbelieving husband with humility, not making his life difficult by being contentious. She has the power to make the marriage relationship horrible or pleasant. And Peter is urging wives to make it a blessing. Use your emotional power. That, that, I think you know what I'm talking about. You can walk in a room and you can change the tone of that room like that. It's a, it's a gift. Use it well. And the last one, spiritual strength. Galatians 6, 1 to 3 says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul here is saying that the one who observes a sin in someone else has power over that person, but should not use that power to crush or to dominate but instead should use it to build up or to bear their sin. What do you do when you see a sin in someone else? Maybe something you don't struggle with is the implication here. Do you exploit it? Do we use our spiritual strength in that particular area to tear others down in the, the eyes of those around them? Oh, you'd never know. You'd never guess what this person struggles with. Or do you, we use it to crush them and smash them over the head, metaphorically, making them feel like fools. How can you have done this again? How can you have done this again? Paul says we must be gentle in those situations. When we see someone struggling and stumbling spiritually, we should be like Christ, not quenching a smoking flax or breaking a bruised reed. Christ wants that person fanned gently into flame, bound up so they can grow strong. So five areas, physical, intellectual, positional, emotional, and spiritual pipes. I I pray that you'd be able to consider these things as as you go out into this year. But I just want you to remember, in closing, that we want to be gentle because we serve a gentle God. We serve a God who's coming in power and glory, who has come in Christ, a majestic God. But... He doesn't use that strength to destroy us or to crush us. He uses it to bless us, to bind us up, to make us his people and to keep us his people. Rejoice in God's strength, knowing that he wants your good. He is your God. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious God you are, Uh, an attractive God even. Lord, what a wonder it would be to, to see you uh, with our own eyes. 
um, give us the eyes of our, our, our heart and our spirit that we might see you there, that we might behold your glory, the glory as of the only God. We might see your strength, your majesty, and that we might know that you, Lord, are not someone, are not a God who has come to crush and destroy us, but you've come to those who come to you, you've come as a gentle God who wants to lead us, to care for us, to tend to us, to build us up. And how wonderful this is. We glorify your name and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.